Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 34. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. Scott and I took the week off to enjoy the summer holiday and did not record an episode this week. So we're pleased to air a pre-recorded interview with Michelle Grant, head of retail at Euromonitor. The interview was recorded on Monday, May 16th, 2016. So this week we have a special guest on the podcast. Joining me tonight is Michelle Grant, who's the head of retail at Euromonitor. And Michelle, thanks very much for coming to the Jason and Scott show. Could you start by telling us a little bit about Euromonitor? Sure. Euromonitor is a global market research firm. We're headquartered in London. We uh, were founded in the early 1970s. First, the firm just covered Western European markets, but as the world has gotten smaller, our country coverage has gotten bigger. So I'm based in our Chicago office, uh, heading up the retail project. Um, And what that entails is we cover uh, over 30 different retail channels in 80 countries. So we kind of look at the entire retailing universe, Uh, building market sizes for the different channels, producing five-year forecasts for those channels, and uh, covering company and brand shares within those channels. And then all of that data is uh, backed up by reports and analysis about what's going on. This gives our clients a, a global strategic view of what's happening in the retail industry. Very cool. So you're saying there are people that sell stuff online outside of North America. Yes, believe it or not. That's amazing. We should talk more about that. But before we do, you mentioned that you run the retail practice, and I, knowing very little about Euromonitor, I'm clear that that's the best and most important practice yes. at Euromonitor. I, I assume we can agree on that. Mm-hmm. But before the podcast, you mentioned that you also had some experience... In the travel industry. Yes, I was on our travel desk for six or seven years before I moved over to retailing about a year and a half ago. So that's another exciting service industry and obviously has been disrupted by the internet as well, a little bit ahead of retailing. So I've taken a lot of lessons from that industry and have seen them applied uh, to retailing. So I'd like to officially welcome you to the retail family. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like this is a milestone being on the podcast. It, I mean, it really is the pinnacle of most guest careers is to be on the Jason and Scott show. Mm-hmm. I can mark that off my You're lifetime right. achievement exactly. goals. Your, your bucket list. I get it. Really glad to have you here, Michelle. One of the things we were talking about before the podcast is... We spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about Amazon. And, of course, uh, we've done the deep dive on Amazon, but we were really focused on Amazon in North America. And you you were sharing your perspective about Amazon strategy outside of North America. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit of your point of view and your observations with our listeners. Mm, certainly. Uh, Amazon, you know, seeks to be the biggest retailer in the world. And in order to do that, it has to play in more markets than just North America. So um, we've been keeping an eye on the company's growth outside of the uh, outside of the U.S. and Canada um, and seeing how it's evolving. Uh, it's certainly um, not one of the most international retailers, believe it or not. Um, but uh 
we've seen it uh, kind of evolve its strategy to to grow internationally. And it's really adapted to the types of markets it plays in. So uh, the company has been in Germany, the UK, and Japan for a very long time. It's their three largest markets outside of the US and probably Canada or North America together. Um, and they've been making, a, or the company has been making a lot of really interesting moves uh, in the past few years. And I believe that um, their strategy in those developed markets is to replicate their prime uh, flywheel that has been very successful in North America. Uh, they did the uh, international, or they did the Prime Day uh, last July in 2015. That was a big hit. Uh, it was, uh, according to them, the biggest day for sales internationally. So I think that was a way to get people abroad where Prime adoption is not as high as, uh, as it is in North America to try the service and get involved. And then much like they've done in North America, they're rolling a lot of more, a lot more services out to those countries. So, um, uh, so they're expanding Amazon Fresh, which has a lot of grocery retailers uh, scared uh, in the region. Uh, they're rolling out Prime now very quickly. I believe it's in Italy, Japan, and um, Germany, maybe? I'm not sure about that last one. Um, and then they've just announced that they're creating a pan-European fulfilled by Amazon program, so that will make it easier for third-party sellers to sell within the region. So these are all things that have been tried and tested in North America, and they're aggressively pursuing them abroad in those markets. And it's interesting. It feels like in those most mature markets, they have a prime offering that's loosely analogous to prime here. You mentioned like prime now is newer to some of those markets, in some of the emerging markets where they, you know, are, are earlier, there there's like governmental and regulatory impediments to some of the prime things. Like I know in India, they're not able to offer the fulfillment centers <laughs> that they have. And I wonder if does it seem like that's potentially part of their geography strategy is to focus on markets where they can bring the whole flywheel model? Or do you think they're primarily being driven by the size of markets or... I think they're being being driven by the size of markets and the opportunities. Um, they lost China, essentially, I'm going to call it official, um, that uh, they couldn't compete with Alibaba um, and weren't localized enough for that market. And um, Alibaba does about $140 billion in GMV, according to our data in that country. Um, and just to put that in context, we think that Amazon does $84 billion in the U.S. So uh, I think Jeff Bezos, if he's listening, uh, is very upset about losing China and doesn't want to do it again with, with the next big market, which is India. So they're doing very interesting things and very localized things in order to uh, capture the Indian market, even though there's a lot more regulatory issues involved. And the government just came out um, in the past couple of months and clarified a few things in, in India when it comes for marketplace operating. So first, Amazon can't uh, sell its own inventory uh, in India, so it's had to operate as a marketplace, although it owns um, a joint venture uh, with another Indian company uh, for Amazon Cloud, Cloudtail, which is their number one seller on the website, accounts for 40% of the, their sales. So the government has come out and said um, no one seller can account for more than 25% of your sales. Uh, and on top of that, 
you can't influence the pricing of products on marketplaces. Uh, so that second bit was the fact that a lot of the marketplaces wouldn't charge uh, you know, commissions or fees to list on the marketplace uh, and uh, in order to get the price of the product lower. Uh, instead, the marketplace would offer other services like advertising um and different kind of you know, search placements uh, in return for that discount. And the discounts were a huge driver of traffic to the marketplaces in general. So right now, um, no one really knows what's going to happen because the government has stated this, but they haven't really said when they're going to start sort of cracking down on it. But they all marketplaces are definitely stopping discounting now. So people are really in general, about that e-commerce environment, wondering what's going to happen if uh, the discounts aren't there to drive the the purchase behavior. I feel like there's a bunch of North American retailers that are like, addicted to promotions and are wondering what happens like when they can no longer afford to do those as well. It is funny. I think the best indication that Amazon has to retreat in China is the fact that they sell on Tmall, the when you when you open up that Tmall shop, it's a pretty good indication that that you're conceding that's where the customers are. <laughs> and then you mention Amazon Fresh, and I assume you were alluding to UK, and that one's interesting because obviously uh, we're familiar with Amazon Fresh here in the states. It's not really a super broad pilot in the US yet, but. Grocery hasn't really caught on in the U.S. It's a sort of a nascent market, and we think it's maybe half a percent to a percent of of groceries are online. The U.K. is one of the most advanced grocery markets, and so it's interesting that Amazon is trying to win grocery there. Like you would almost expect, they have these strengths in other markets where grocery isn't strong. That you might that that might be the the white space it would go after, but it seems like they're. They're interested in being a serious player in the UK, which is a very competitive market for online grocery. Mm-hmm. It is extremely competitive in the UK, and uh, as you mentioned, has uh, one of the highest penetration rates as well for online commerce or online grocery. Um, but yeah, I, I think it makes sense because it is one of their largest markets already, so they have a lot of infrastructure in place, um, and there is that cultural habit of buying online you know, groceries. So if you think you can do it better than the entrenched players, then there's probably a better opportunity than going into, say, the German market where you know the discounters uh, offline have a really strong hold over purchasing behavior and has one of the lowest penetration rates of online grocery, but also a large Amazon market. If we were to relocate from here to London or Germany, would Amazon feel pretty familiar to us? Like, do you have a sense? Is the assortment similar? I think so. I think the pricing on Prime is different. And I've heard um, that it's a bit more expensive for what you're getting, which is why the uptake hasn't been as uh, dramatic as it has been in the U.S. And a lot of people do complain that they think it's overpriced uh, overseas. So it'll be interesting. They rolled out a new uh, pricing plan in the U.S. with the monthly. Um, so I don't know if they have plans to extend that to other countries, but that might be another way around it. Yeah, and obviously, to some extent, they still do. But early on, they were doing a lot of promotions around Prime, and they would you know, give Prime to mothers and students and things like that. And I would presume in, in markets where they're not as strong that that would be part of their strategy as well to sort of seed the market with those early early prime members. 
here in the U.S., Walmart just turned up their shipping pass, which is their $50 version of Prime. And, you know, we were speculating that uh, wouldn't be shocking to see Jeff Bezos respond to that by just dropping Prime to $50 <laughs> in the U.S. So seems like he would be perfectly happy to give up the margin in the short term to make sure that he gets the market share in the long, in the long run. Going back to India for a second. So that's the big prize. He clearly isn't going to be the number one player in China. India's a similar size market, arguably like more affluent at the moment, although e-commerce seems way more nascent in India than it is in China. If we're handicapping that, is it realistic for them to win? It just it does seem like a lot of the components of the flywheel are going to be much harder to execute there between first-party sales and fulfillment models, and Prime's going to have to feel very different. There's no Prime in India, so um, I think... You know, and most retailers have to think about this too when they expand into emerging markets. You're dealing with a different set of challenges and you have to um, localize in much more drastic terms to to be successful. Um, And I think when you look at the long term of India, you know, population wise, income wise, internet penetration, I mean, 20 years out it's going to be a huge market. Um, and I think, you know, that's the way Amazon thinks is 20, 30, 50 years out and they invest accordingly. So I believe that uh, Amazon will do what it takes to, at this beginning, not let uh, the incumbent uh, local retailers like Flipkart, Mintra, Snapdeal, really lock up that market um, and uh, sort of block Amazon from gaining meaningful share, which is what happened in in, in China, essentially. So I think they're willing to do whatever it takes. Um, They've already said that they've committed $2 billion in investment to the country. I think they'll just keep pouring it in until they're they're number one. Got you. I know one other challenge in China that I uh, I don't know if it's a challenge in India or not. Google is not very prevalent in China. And of course, there's Badao, but uh, Tmall does not allow Badao to crawl the site. Mm-hmm. And so whether this was on purpose or indirectly, it created a huge advantage for Tmall. Consumers aren't used to going to the search engine, doing a search, and then getting referred to the marketplace. They're used to going to the marketplace and doing their search. So when Amazon launched... In China, it was very difficult to win that traffic. Is Google or another search engine prevalent in China, in India? Like, could I don't know. I, it'd be yeah, interesting not, to look in. Yeah. yeah, I'm not really sure about that either. I follow Amazon.com.in on Twitter, so they're very active in their you know deals and pushing social media. But as far as- and is that all in English? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. I have not been following it. That's a good tip. <laughs> It's funny, I follow all the Alibaba handles, mm-hmm. and they're pretty interesting. I've tried to get in some debates with them, and they, they never seem to take my <laughs> my little uh, cookies I've dropped for them. Yeah. But, uh, but we'll see. So changing uh, parts of the globe for a second, is Amazon very meaningful in, like, Mexico or Latin America at all? Like, what's the footprint there? Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that I believe Amazon uh, has... Uh, 13 country-specific websites, but not all of them sell full range of products. Many of them, like the Australian website, only sells Kindles and media products. And in Latin America, that's the case as well. It was until they 
officially opened up in Mexico last year. So they hired a bunch of walmart.com.mx executives away and they bought a distribution center outside of Mexico City and started selling, um, I think, about um, maybe 10 or so different product categories. So they're, they're pushing in there, um, but not quick, not as quickly or as innovative as they're pushing to India, which is interesting because I thought, okay, well, India, they've been there a couple of years now. It's an emerging market. Uh, they have this playbook where they've gotten around payment issues, delivery issues. Um, is that the playbook that they're going to apply when they go into these emerging markets and expand their websites from just the media products categories into you know, baby care, toys and games, consumer electronics? And it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, they're going a lot slower, in my opinion, in, in uh, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And when we look at their website, interestingly, a lot of the third-party sellers are Amazon U.S., so we wonder if they're kind of importing some of the products from their distribution centers in the U.S. into Mexico for their northern region, um, and and then uh, you know sourcing their inventory from that one distribution center. So just to give some context, in two years in India, they built seven distribution centers. Um, you know, there there don't seem to be any other rumors of them building or buying more space in Mexico, and it'll be a year in, I think, uh, like late summer this year that they've they'll have officially been selling more than media products in Mexico. So, hmm. an interesting thing you mentioned: there are several countries where Amazon's just selling the first party products, and of course, there's some news this week that Amazon's likely to expand some of the private label brands. So we've like seen over the last couple of months, a lot of the private label uh, apparel start to emerge. And now there was a Wall Street Journal article about like the expanded line of baby products. And um, it would be interesting to see if some of those other international websites that were primarily Kindle focused end up taking the whole suite of Amazon private label brands. Like they're not doing Amazon Basics or Amazon Elements right now, like in Australia, are they? No. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I hate giving Scott Wingo credit for anything when he's not here, but he was speculating that almost all the new product lines that Amazon is focusing on are top-selling categories on Alibaba. And so he had a theory that while they're clearly building those products for the U.S. market, a secondary objective is to build private label product that they can successfully sell into China. So if they can't win as the seller in China, that perhaps they can have some success as a product is almost funny to say product manufacturer in China, because <laughs> I assume they'll be manufacturing the product there. But um, It depends on how well they do their branding. Um, when we look at our data for private label penetration uh, across industries, uh, a lot of emerging markets actually don't like private label. It's a Western thing for sure. So um, if people, and, and the, the new brands uh, are not Amazon basics, they're, disguise, they're fantasy brands, they're, you, you can't tell that they're you know, Amazon brands unless you're in the industry. Um, so if they do a good job with that, that might work. Uh, but I think Chinese consumers, if they're going to Tmall to buy 
um, you know, products, uh, they go for foreign brands that are well recognized, and that's just a, a consumer behavior piece. So, I think the private label, in my opinion, is um, just to play to pad your margins. I, I think it's just crucial for an e-commerce company. We see it with like Birchbox, you know, transiting or transitioning from a, just a subscription to have their own private label. There's a lot of different examples. And I think that's just another tool that e-commerce players are going to have in their arsenal in order to boost their margins, um, which we see in traditional retail as well. Uh, Whole Foods is uh, increasing their uh, percentage of private label uh, over the past uh, few years and then creating a whole brand around it with Whole Foods 365. So, And of course, the to me, the king of private labels is their competitor in that space is Trader Joe's, yes. which is like all private label, and they kill Whole Foods on a revenue per square foot basis, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to see. When Scott proposed that, there's part of me thinking there's a huge bias in for affluent people in China to Western brands. And like Chinese people have a lot of safety concerns, particularly around baby products and things like that. So they like the Western brands for the perceived safety of them. And so when you just think about that, you could go, oh, yeah, maybe Amazon could have some success as an icon of a Western brand. But then the thing that makes me dubious is the Chinese consumers also are much more focused on luxury brands, right? And we have a lot of luxury brands in the U.S. that aren't doing very well in North America, but they're killing it in China, where consumers still seem more willing to pay a premium for for those aspirational brands. And it seems unlikely that Amazon's ever going to be able to establish any of its private label products as a a true luxury brand, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. And and so they list on Tmall, but they still have Amazon uh, local website, and they've pretty much just pivoted to uh, our Amazon.com.cn uh, is actually a link, basically, or a mirror of Amazon.com, and those Chinese consumers are buying off of Amazon.com for the foreign brands, for the quality. So they really retrench to their strengths of, we have these relationships with the brands, and we will be the the medium to sell into to China using the Amazon brand. Of course, that's a much smaller market than what Alibaba has, has created. So let's change topics for a second and talk about cross-border commerce for a minute. You mentioned earlier that one of Amazon's play in Europe was, and I forget what you called it, it was a cool term that I hadn't heard before. Pan-European FBA. Pan-European FBA. I presume part of that is to make a single set of inventory visible to multiple countries in Europe, but I suspect that there are people in other markets, including North America, that then use that infrastructure as a convenient way to help them enter Europe, for example. I'm not sure uh, if it's necessarily the U.S. as a source market, but certainly within um, Europe, uh, just geographically, everyone's so close together, and there's a lot of similarities. So like Austrians buy from the German website pretty easily. Uh, So I think the FBA is just uh, a means of allowing that inventory uh, to be distributed across those countries uh, much easier. I know a lot actually 
um, actually originates, originates from the UK to go into Western Europe and then other markets, including Australia. So because Australians don't have a full Amazon.com website, they often buy from the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, websites. And then often use some kind of freight forwarder to get the goods there and mm-hmm. presumably also illegally bypass some import tariffs when they can. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so I've been told. I don't yeah. know that. Yeah. Know that firsthand. One thing, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but uh, again, because Scott isn't here, we could totally talk about him. Uh, I attended the Channel Advisor conference earlier this year, and I was surprised. I don't know why I was, but uh, maybe I shouldn't have been, but there's a a fair amount of people that one of the big value props to them of Channel Advisor is send those feeds to international countries where Channel Advisor supports marketplaces and Channel Advisor supports Amazon in Europe, and it becomes a super low friction way to expand your market. And so I felt like there were a a fair amount of Channel Advisor clients that were using Hmm. European FBA as a way to expand their their North American businesses into Europe. And I, I, like I said, going in there, I didn't expect to see that, but Mm. uh, that seems interesting. And then, of course, Channel Advisor supports... Alibaba, so there for sure are a lot of sellers that use that those feeds to the marketplace as a convenient way to expand to China via Alibaba or Mercado Libra in Brazil and some of the other Latin countries or Rakuten in in Japan. When you talk about cross border commerce, is that Part of what you're mm-hmm. thinking of, and yep. When we track uh, internet commerce for Euromonitor, we track where the tra- where the consumer sits. So, if the Australian is buying off of the Amazon.co.uk website, we count that towards a transaction in Australia. So, we kind of have a sense of what's going on behind the scenes because of the way that we measure the market, and um, it's definitely growing in uh, popularity. Uh, and there's a lot of interest around it because you can, you know, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to sell in other in other markets if you if you feel like you're saturated in in the U.S. or your domestic market. Um, and we find that um, yeah, it's becoming more common because shipping costs have come down, shipping times have come down. Companies like Channel Advisor have made it easier to sell in other countries. Lots of companies have uh, made it easier to localize your website uh, for those co- for those countries, and then the logistics is there's a lot of investment around that in, in making it easier. Yeah, it does seem like there's both a rich ecosystem of partners and vendors to help customers uh, clients in any geography achieve cross border commerce, and that just seems like very high on everyone's list of e-commerce strategies to grow their market. Like I feel like a lot of people feel like they've hit a saturation point in their current market where they're either going to have to spend more on acquisition or do other things to get new customers. And it's just been more cost effective to expand geographically. So Mm -hmm. I was just at um, the TransPerfect conference, which TransPerfect is a huge translation vendor and they provide a lot of those website translation services and they have a whole ecosystem of partners that are just using them to achieve cross-border commerce. And then I think FedEx bought, I always get these guys confused, but Boingo, Bo- Bogus, Bongus, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. But there's a couple 
cross-border shipping companies. So sort of one step short of putting your goods in the local market and marketing it on a website there is, of course, making it easier for a shopper in Germany to shop on a U.S. site and ship those goods to the U.S. site. So there are these companies that both translate your website and act as the freight forwarder to to ship those products. And it seems like by your definition of cross-border commerce, it would include both of those kinds of transactions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, do you have a sense? It, it feels to me like in a lot of those countries, there's a more established pattern of cross-border shopping. Mm-hmm. Like either they they have a perception that the, that the assortment isn't available locally or they're just used to there being more impediments. And so it seems like a, a funny phenomenon we often see is if you're a U.S.-only site, you can very often have a meaningful percentage of your revenue coming from Canada. Mm-hmm. So Canadians are ordering and shipping across the border. And so at some point you look at that and you go, man, this is a good business. I should open a Canadian site and make that easier for Canadians and grow that business. And so I've seen a number of retailers open a .ca site only to find that the Canadians still shop the .com site because that just feels like the the ingrained behavior that they have. The other thing is um, just this Canadian example brought to mind that Canadians, when they were shopping at Target in uh, when it was there. Uh, Wait, did a Canadian ever shopped at Target when it was there? I thought it was like zero sale. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> a few of them. Um, they knew that the pricing was higher uh, than going across the border. So I could imagine that if um, you're not uh, careful about your price parity, they're not going to go to the .ca site because you're going to buy for cheaper off of the the U.S. website, and especially once currencies come into play, and you know now the Canadian dollar isn't as strong as it used to be, but uh, when it was at its height, I can imagine that it just drove more traffic to the to the local website. So, you know, Target's done an internet uh, an internet inter- interesting thing in that they've just built one site um, for international traffic that you know, converts to the local language, converts to the local currency at the U.S. price. So there is no price arbitrage to be had when you're shopping at Target's international website, which I thought was very clever. Um, but it's really interesting. When I was in Singapore last uh, fall, I was talking to one of my coworkers, and she she buys most of her clothing uh, from the U.S., including, you know, shoes from Payless, of all places, where you'd think, such a low average transaction value, why would you pay so much for shipping? But shipping prices have gone down so much to Singapore that it's still cheaper for her to pay for shipping plus the products from Payless than uh, buying in the local market. So my wonder or my big interesting theory about the globalization of e-commerce is how does that impact pricing? Uh, If you have someone in Singapore who is able to buy products cheaper in the U.S., products that were made in Asia, then shipped over to the U.S. and then is shipped back. Um, You know, I think Target is probably one of the first that I know of that's really addressed the issue by having one international site and making sure that the prices are are tagged uh, the same. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it feels like the world is just going to keep getting smaller and smaller and more and more transparent, which, to your point, is going to have some predictable consequences, but also some some unintended interesting consequences. And it feels like 
the only thing that's going to stop it at this point is if someone builds some kind of great big beautiful wall around all the countries, but that doesn't seem very likely. No, no, not at all. Yeah, uh, don't want to don't want to go there on this show. We welcome listeners of all political orientations. One interesting thing you mentioned that the shipping costs to Singapore are going down. Uh, of course, there's one big shipping disparity in the world. China puts a bunch of goods in containers and ships them all over the world. And at some point, they need those containers back, right? Like, so, you know, at the moment, we have this one-way flow of goods going all over the place. And I know, you know, Alibaba has had this pitch for a while. Hey, use us to reach the indigenous Chinese market. Like, we're a great cross-border solution to help uh, Westerners and Europeans um, sell into the Chinese market. We have access to the consumers, we have the second site, tmall.hk, that is a little easier to sell on if you don't have a, a legal Chinese entity. And, oh, by the way, we ship a bunch of empty containers from your market <laughs> back to our country. So we'll also make it really cheap to get the goods into China because we'll put them in our empty containers that have to go on the boat anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, are you seeing, like, do you specifically follow? cross-border or being enabled by Alibaba and that, I don't know how big a piece of their business is, but it definitely seems like a pretty significant play. Definitely. I don't, I don't know offhand what the, um, what the GMV is for that. Uh, I do know that the Chinese government does track the amount of uh, cross-border commerce and has in fact really encouraged it by setting up uh, 12 different uh, or 12 cities that are free trade zones uh, that had, well, at least until recently, had a different set of tariffs coming through and an expedited uh, customs uh, uh, way, depending on if you wanted it drop shipped or uh, or stored in a bonded warehouse. So uh, I think China is definitely the leader in cross border commerce, and they're really encouraging it to be kind of both the uh, supplier to the world, but also as one of the larging, larger consumers of you know products from abroad. Um, I think, yeah, so you see a lot of government activity in China that you don't really see um, in other countries uh, as far as encouraging that type of uh, 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 commerce. Uh, the interesting thing that uh, the Chinese government is doing is their, um, which I don't think it's as much as attention over here as it should, which is their One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, so what they're doing is they're building a belt, um, which is a land connection uh, between Central Asia, Russia, and Western Europe. And then the road, uh, interestingly enough, uh, is the maritime route that is connecting the Western Pacific with the, the Indian Ocean. Um, so when it's done, it would encompass more than 60 countries and a population of over 3 billion people. Uh, and so they're really undergoing this massive logistics infrastructure investment um, that has a lot of impl- implications for moving the goods around the world inexpensively, but also developing areas along those routes that could be possible markets um, for retailers and, and manufacturers, you know, putting a lot of investment in the CIS countries, you know, all this rail lines with stations and, you know, they're building kind of these economic centers that weren't there before. So 
it's really it's really fascinating. It's a massive undertaking, and I think some people are a bit skeptical about how it will kind of shake out in the end. Will it work? Is it going to be complete? But the potential is is really large. It's uh, crazy. It's like a digitization of all the old original trade routes, if you will. It's like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that, that kind of speaks again to this sort of universal price, though, is if, you know, China can distribute everything very, even more inexpensively uh, because of this infrastructure, what does that mean uh, for manufacturers that are outside of China? Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. It does seem like we're... You you mentioned Target is a great example that sort of has uh, adopted a universal price strategy. A lot of the that feels like the trend with the luxury brands as well. That like for a long time, they you know there was a perception that like certain markets couldn't afford the same premiums, and so they'd have wildly different pricing strategies in different markets. And I feel like I've followed a number of luxury brands recently that have adopted this kind of one world pricing strategy and I assume a big part of that is just the transparency that like you could get away with selling your goods cheap in one market and not eroding your luxury position in the rest of the world when nobody was talking to each other but now that you can jump on a blog and find out like the price of Louis Vuitton everywhere in the world Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a more risky proposition. Yeah, and I, going back to my old travel days, I mean, China is one of the largest outbound markets in the world now for travel. So people are going abroad and seeing the prices uh, and the actual in the stores in Western Europe. And um, it's still for China, the import taxes are still very high. So you do still see a lot of people purchasing abroad because it is cheaper due to the, the tax difference. But uh, yeah, the luxury retailers are, are unifying their prices for sure. Yeah. But it's just the import taxes on on luxury goods that would cause a price difference at this point. Yeah, I think it's easy in North America to n- lose sight of just how many Chinese are traveling abroad. I, I don't know if this is actually true or not, but it's an awesome stat. Nonetheless, I, I've heard a stat that there are more Chinese abroad than there are Americans in the world. Huh. Uh, I could see that. Yeah, which is totally possible. And I was in South Korea earlier this year, and there was this funny phenomenon. So we've we've talked a lot on the show about the social platforms. And, of course, in China, the dominant platform is WeChat. In South Korea, the dominant platform is called KakaoChat. And WeChat isn't super popular with indigenous uh, Koreans. But every department store I walked into in South Korea – had all kinds of WeChat QR codes. And at first you're like, what's going on? Are there a bunch of Koreans using WeChat? No. (laughs) Those department stores were catering to Chinese tourists in Korea, which is like a bigger market than the local Koreans for them in that case. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Yeah, so it's fascinating. Anything else we should know about cross-border commerce? That seems like really fascinating, and it does kind of make you think uh, what the world's going to look like when – we're all competing on manufacturing costs and we're all competing on the same price points. Mm-hmm. I, one, one last point to bring it back to Amazon. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to fill uh, Scott Wingo's uh, big shoes on Amazon, but Jeff Bezos uh, actually called out cross-border sales for Amazon in his shareholder letter saying that it was uh, that nearly a quarter of all third-party units sold on Amazon um, were cross-border. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on with Amazon's logistics and what their moves in China are. So 
I wonder if this is also a focus for, for Amazon as they see the data kind of pour in. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it feels like, I mean, at the moment, we've got these two giant e-commerce players in a total land grab, like each trying to carve out their their squares on the risk board, if you if you right. will. It's gonna it's gonna be interesting. If we want to make Scott really happy, we would mention that that Jeff Bezos is planning on selling virtual reality drones cross border because that would sort of check all the boxes for Scott. He certainly has the technology right to send those drones across the ocean to deliver packages. Yeah, it seems like that could potentially not be cost effective, <laughs> but far be it for me to doubt drones. All right, so since Scott isn't here today, let's stop talking about lame stuff that would interest him and focus on the much more important stuff that interests me. For me, that's mobile. So an interesting debate that Scott and I have had a couple of times on the show is talking about the relative value of mobile apps versus the mobile web. And I, uh, anytime we have a guest on, I'm always curious to hear their perspective. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are in terms of mobile apps versus mobile web. And I'll tell you if you're right or not. Okay, great. Excellent. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the guidance um, because uh, we've seen a lot of different strategies uh, deployed. And uh, I think much like retailers need to be omni-channel, they need to be omni-mobile. So that includes having a mobile website and a mobile app. Um, you know, but the world is changing. You know, looking at our data globally uh, in 2020, about 50% of uh, online commerce will happen through a mobile device. So I could see the temptation to go maybe mobile app only, uh, which we saw happen in India uh, with Flipkart and Mintra, although they, they quickly backtracked. Um, another interesting case was that Amazon Prime now started only as an app, but is now a website that is not really well publicized in in my opinion and there's like kind of a buried link when you go to amazon.com and I know that was one of your yeah, guys' you complaint. Are now yeah. Officially the third person to know <laughs> that Amazon Prime now has a website, but yeah. Um so yeah, so uh I think even though that it's um a cost effective measure maybe to concentrate your resources into one of the uh uh, areas you still need to have all three um, because that's how the consumer wants to shop. And not everyone wants to download a retail app, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously the the cheating correct answer. Is, <laughs> uh, for many retailers, it makes sense to have both. And I'll totally concede that. The, the challenge for me is a bunch of retailers are on, you know, have constrained resources. And so it's, it's really a matter of prioritization and sequencing it. And like, you know, jumping on my own soapbox, very often I'll see people start with the mobile app. And in general, for retailers, I don't like that strategy as much because I do think for most of us, it's very hard to get good reach from a mobile app, right? Like, the very few of us have a brand that gets shopped every day or every week. And so, you know, if, the, if you're only shopping, you know, pick the retailer, Target, Nordstrom, you know, if you're shopping them six or 12 times a year, which most retailers would be thrilled with 12 visits a year, you're just not going to keep Mindshare and keep that app on the homepage of the mobile phone. And like we, we see the stats are kind of overwhelmingly stacked against apps that, that, the majority of apps don't get downloaded or they get downloaded and only run once. So 
for a bunch of retailers to say like, hey, I'm going to spend a fortune on my mobile app. And then after that, I'll sell the mobile web. That to me feels a little scary. But I'll totally agree. Once you've done a good mobile web experience, which reaches that broad audience, there's an opportunity to follow that up with a mobile app. And that mobile app can reach your highest value, most loyal audience, right? And so a subset of Target's customers do shop them 52 times a year and might keep that that app. And particularly in Target's case, that's going to be Cartwheel, which tens of millions of users do keep on their homepage. And so I, there definitely can be value in the mobile app. I just get sad when I see a retailer overly focus on the mobile app and not recognize all the challenges of getting... Uh, and keeping an installed base on the mobile app. Mm-hmm. And huge pet peeve, hopefully you'll agree with me. Going back to your travel routes, I'm on uh, SPG's mobile app recently, mm-hmm. and there's a button to change a reservation. Mm-hmm. And you click the button to change the reservation, and it goes, I've added your reservation number to the clipboard, and it launches the mobile website. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, why bother to have a mobile app if you're just going to refer me to your mobile website, but that might, I might be digressing a little bit from our main, main point. So we've had that conversation apps versus web a lot. And I, you know, I I feel like we're all kind of consolidating at the same answer, but what's interesting to me is the nature of what an app is fundamentally going to shift. And then does that change how we think about that? Right. So we mentioned WeChat earlier, WeChat is an app, but it really is a mobile platform, right? And then there are millions of companies that have sponsored pages, a.k.a. bots, that are really apps running on the WeChat platform. And so is it possible that the these mobile apps are going to evolve in a way that changes that calculus and maybe does make it easier for the the apps to win long run versus the web. Do you guys see any any indication that the the nature of mobile is shifting, or do you guys have a perspective on what the future of mobile might look like? Um, I definitely think Facebook with Messenger is following WeChat's playbook. Um, the interesting thing, though, is, is if if there's a cultural difference that um, you know when Chinese uh, most Chinese people really first get online it's through a mobile device. It's through WeChat. Um, so they're just kind of used to doing everything in one place. Whereas, you know, uh, we've kind of, you know, evolved with using apps and we're very siloed in that nature. So using Messenger to uh, talk with a bot to order something from 1-800-Flowers, I'm not sure if the behavior is ingrained that we still think, oh, well, I'm going to just, search for that and, and, and do it either through the app or a mobile web. I'm not sure that uh, the one app to rule it all uh, in, in, in Western markets will work, although we're going to find out because I think Facebook is definitely trying to, to build that. Um, but aside from that, I think there's a lot of interesting developments going on in, in apps, in particular Google uh, is um, you know allowing people to stream apps before they download them. They're improving their uh, app indexing. Uh, so you know, will the app even exist in the next five, ten years? Who knows? It might just be uh, you know something that you I don't know talk to Siri about or. Um, 
uh, Cortana, and I don't know the Google one off the top of my head. Google Now, exactly. A way less uh, human human name. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. What are your thoughts? What, what will mobile apps look like in the future? Yeah. Well, so first point, like the screen, streaming and index do create the likelihood that they're just going to blend and potentially it, it might become an irrelevant distinction, right? So at the moment, when most of us think of apps, what we really think of is a client side, like something that happens in the phone versus web is something that's primar- an experience that's primarily being delivered by the server. Um, but as we start streaming apps, is that a server side experience or, you know, like a lot of the, the pros and cons of those two different architectures start getting merged. One of the huge challenges with the mobile web at the moment is performance just sucks. It's a, the mobile web is really slow and getting slower and all these third party advertising and third and fourth party content, uh, the experience is just getting worse and worse. And to me, like that has the potential to push people to apps, which when done well can, improved performance. A big thing that needs to get fixed, and I'm seeing some evidence that it is getting fixed, is the deep linking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the moment, every one of my clients will talk about, oh, yeah, we're going to start with a mobile app, and then I have to show them this, like, happy path with a mobile app, right? And the happy path is you know you need a product. You need cranberry supplement pills. So you go do a search on Google, and Google gives you a, a happy result, and you go to that page you, you go to a mobile web page that sells cranberry pills, but at the top of that mobile web page is an interstitial saying, you should download our app. And so for most brands, what happens is, oh, cool, I like the app. I'll download the app. Next thing is I get an iTunes prompt for my iTunes password, which half of us don't know. <laughs> if you are like one of the super smart users that know your iTunes password, you download that app, and then you launch that app, and guess what you're not going to see when you launch that app? Cranberry pills, right? right? Like, because you're going to get the home page on that app and you had all this like strong, intense signals and you had this like great scent towards the product and you were one click away from selling that product. And then this app experience totally removed you from it, right? And mm-hmm. so that's technically solvable, right? Like, you should be able to launch that app and remember that that shopper was looking for cranberry pills and came from a Google paid search result. And you should be able to link right to the cranberry page pill in the app. And the, the apps now support that deep linking. Very few retailers are uh, have all the pieces together to really execute it well. And particularly in that, that happy path I just walked you through where there was an interstitial encouraging you to download the app. Very few retailers bother to pass the, the, that referral link through that whole chain so that we can deep link. But but that certainly seems like something that the brands are going to start getting better and better at, mm-hmm. and that could make apps more useful. What is the biggest challenge uh, that retailers face um, in sort of adapting to that better happy path? To be honest, it's just a prioritization. Like all the technical pieces are there. It's a meaningful amount of work, and if you walk into any retailer in America and you walk into the VP of e-commerce's office, they're likely to have this crazy roadmap on their whiteboard. And there's a hundred things on that roadmap that they know they should do. And there's probably someone that could make an articulate argument for all of them having a favorable ROI. Mm-hmm. There just aren't resources to do 
a hundred of those things, right? And so in general, they only get to the top two or three. And by the time they get to the fourth one, the world's changed and the priorities have reshuffled. Mm-hmm. And so if doing a really good job of executing deep linking is on that roadmap, but it's the sixth or seventh thing, it's valuable. Everyone should do it. Most retailers don't have enough resources to do it in parallel with the other significant initiatives that they're trying to tackle. So I'm getting very annoyed by the uh, the the prompts to download the apps. It kind of reminds me of the uh, pop-ups that you know Google got rid of. I thought maybe we had learned our lesson. Yeah. Well, Google interestingly has has started policing a particular version of that. So uh, what's called a full page interstitial where you click on a link and they they don't take you to the link you clicked on and instead take you to a page promoting the app. Mm-hmm. Google now rec- highly recommends against that and will punish you for SEO if you have a full-page interstitial. Because, again, in general, their thing is all about uh, relevance, and they want you to get a page that's relevant when you click on a link. And they, in theory, want to reward you for making that page more and more relevant so that duping the user and tricking them and taking them to to an advertisement to download an app is not very uh, thematically compatible with, with Google's philosophy. And so they've now overtly started punishing people that do that. So you don't see that as much anymore. What you see instead are these partial interstitials where you get the page but then you get the 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 promotion for the app at the top of that page. And to me, part of that's a vanity thing, right? Like they're all these brands invested in their app and they just want to like boost their engagement metric. They want to say, oh, we got more app downloads. And it's interesting. You'll talk to a bunch of retailers and go, why do you want more app downloads? Do like, do you know that those are higher value customers? Like, have you done any Mm-hmm. any analytics and a lot of the people that are like giving up a bunch of real estate to promote that app don't necessarily know conclusively that the app is any better than having left the customer on the the mobile web page so to me that's particularly silly and ironic to mm-hmm. i think it also ruins the customer experience if i keep going back to the same website and uh, being prompted to download the app when i don't want it and i can't hit the little tiny X up top, um, then I'm just like, whatever. (laughs) I'm going to stop going to your website. It really is frustrating. Again, like we're seeing the overwhelming majority of traffic shift to mobile and that should be this super happy experience. But the, there's like, we're adding more friction in general. We're not getting better at mobile experiences. We're getting worse. And, and, you know, you, you hit one, like, you know, all these ads with intentionally difficult to close boxes. I use this app on my phone, uh, Google News, right, as kind of a news curation and just to get the top headlines. And there's some advertiser on Google News that's a custom kitchen cabinet company. And they have this full page ad that they secretly embed in the content and it's super hard to scroll through the articles and not accidentally hit the ad. And then when you hit the ad, it takes over the whole experience. It doesn't give you any way to close it or opt out. So I have to literally terminate the Google News app and rerun it. And every time that happens, I hate this company more and more. And I'm, I've like, frankly, I've desperately looked for their Twitter profile to sh- publicly <laughs> shame them and annoyingly... They're, while they're spending all this money on advertising on Google, they they don't have a Twitter account. So, 
So I'll, uh, they'll remain anonymous, I guess. But but those experiences are all too common in mobile, and we do have to get better. It's going to be interesting in the long run. Like you look at Google, and they're doing more and more with a different metaphor. Like they're using that card metaphor for a lot of the mobile experiences. And to me, the card metaphor is pretty interesting. We're not trying to do the exact same things on mobile that we did on desktop, right? And in general, we're using the mobile for a lot more of these micro moments, these like little things where we just want one piece of information or we just want one thing to happen. And the, the like Google now cards format seems to fit those micro moments really well. And I've seen more and more uh, other companies start to adopt that that metaphor. And so I, I could imagine a uh, an era in which uh, we stop talking about mobile as a mobile website and we start talking about it as an ecosystem of these mobile moment cards, for example. And, you know, if that's true, here's a hint for all the the podcast listeners. We need a bunch of new tools, right? Like we have content management systems for the web, we need content management systems for mobile cards. And uh, when we're talking about chatbots and integrating with Facebook Messenger, we you know, we probably don't want to deliver text on the mobile phone. We probably want to deliver some kind of mobile card. So it'll, it'll be interesting. That that feels like a paradigm that's getting some traction right now. Google seems to to be carrying it more and more places. And as it becomes a user convention, you know, it suddenly becomes something we could adopt for a bunch of other retail sites. So maybe one day you'll get a order confirmation card instead of an order confirmation email or page. Mm-hmm. We shall have to see. Listen, Michelle, I could talk to you all night. It seems like we've covered a bunch of interesting ground, but in classic Jason and Scott show fashion, we've totally used up all our time. So I really want to thank you for being our guest this week, and I want to remind all the users that we, or listeners rather, that we now have a Jason and Scott show Facebook page, so we'd love... Uh, to continue the dialogue, if you if I got anything horribly wrong, uh, jump on the Facebook page and let us know. Um, or if you want to hear more about any of those topics, we'd love to hear that too. Of course, we always appreciate the reviews on iTunes. And so until next week, we'll wish all the listeners a happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 